Let's open up our Bibles together as we continue on in our series uh, through Matthew. So we are at Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be studying verses 13 through the end of the chapter, through 23. So we are at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Uh, let's open in prayer before we get started, though. Uh, God, we come before you. Uh, we thank you that you are a God that reveals, that you did not leave us here to fend for ourselves, to, to try to figure out you, but you have uh, communicated very clearly who you are through the pages of Scripture. And we really pray to that end this day, uh, that, that we would get to know you better, that we would see you, that we would understand you in the pages of Scripture. We know that this can only happen uh, by your empowerment, by your blessing, by you illuminating the text. So we pray uh, that you would do that, uh, that God, we would just not be simply going through a religious practice today, but that we would be hearing from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, got a lot of work to do today as we work through uh, this chapter. Uh, so far, we have seen a theme in the Gospel of Matthew with regards to prophetic fulfillment. We've seen that Jesus, even in the genealogy, that he uh, is the son of David, that he is the blessing of Abraham that was promised in Genesis. Uh, last week with Pastor Andy, we saw a direct, precise fulfillment. Can somebody turn the lights on, please? I remember this time. I feel like as I'm getting older, I feel like, man, my vision is just not as good when I'm reading small. And that, this doesn't help. So if somebody could turn the light on, that would be great. Um, where was I going? Oh, direct, precise fulfillment of prophecy. So last week we saw Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. Guess what happened? Jesus was born in, let it, there be light, and there was light. Uh, there was direct fulfillment of that. What we're going to see today is an indirect pattern of fulfillment. So it's going to be different than what we've seen so far. Uh, what we're going to be looking at is called typology. I, even if you have the sermon notes, I call this typology 101. Uh, an example from the Old Testament typically that is pointing forward towards Jesus and their greater fulfillment of it is found in Christ. I'll give you two examples from the Old Testament with regards to this. And both examples, typically with typology, you don't know it's typology until the Bible says it was typology. So in the moment, you're not thinking, oh, this is going to happen again in a greater sense in Christ. But as the Bible says, this was a greater fulfillment. That's when we know it's typology. Uh, first example, the story of Jonah. So we know the story of Jonah. Jonah goes, uh, instead of where he's supposed to go, he tries to run from God, run from his calling to preach the gospel to Nineveh. He's on the boat. It goes crazy, storms. He's having the storms because he is disobeying God. They throw him into the water, and he's swallowed by what? A large fish. And he spends three days and three nights in that belly of that fish. Okay. Well, in Matthew 12, 40... 
It says, just like Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That is a reference to what? His death and then burial. So, so in that moment, we see Jonah was a type of Christ. Another example uh, is from Numbers 21. The Israelites, in typical Israelite fashion, are, are complaining and grumbling in the wilderness. And they say, man, we miss the good days when we were enslaved in Egypt. And, and God says, okay, you want Egypt. One of the things that would have been synonymous with Egypt was serpents. Uh, even when we see Pharaoh, the idea of cobras. So he gives them a bunch of snakes. And they're biting and killing everybody. But God in his grace says, here's how we're going to fix this. You're going to raise up a bronze serpent. If people who are bit by that snake looks to the bronze serpent, they won't die, they'll live. Well, John chapter 3, it says, Just as Moses raised up the bronze serpent, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that is a reference to the cross. So in typology, these patterns intensify as they're fulfilled in Jesus. We see a partial fulfillment in the original context, but ultimate meaning is found in the Messiah. And what we're going to see at the end of the day is Jesus is better, Jesus is greater, Jesus is fuller. The real meaning, the real hope, the real joy, the real significance is found in Christ. So that's what we're going to see in our three types this morning as we look at typology 101. The first type, we're going to see another exodus. We're going to see God again taking out his son from Egypt, and we'll see what that means. Second type, we're going to look at a silver lining. We're going to see that there's pain in exile, but it is not without hope. So we're going to see pain in exile, but not without hope. And then lastly, type number three, we're going to see a man of no reputation, that Jesus is not the king that you're expecting, and he's surely not from the town you would expect. So let's get started as we pick up at verse 13 and see another exodus. Now, last week's passage that Pastor Andy preached, very common passage we're used to with regards to Christmas, uh, the focus of worshiping baby Jesus. It's kind of got a joyful feel in the midst of the text. And then there's this contrast today. We go from joy and worship to danger and murder right in the midst. And, and we see kind of the juxtaposition of Jesus in this world. That Jesus is so a, such a polarizing figure. Some love and embrace while the others hate and reject. So we're going to immediately see Matthew start connecting our passage today to the Old Testament. First thing we need to do is look at the story of Israel. Read verse 13 with me. It says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son now, now, Joseph again has an angel of the Lord appear to him, and he gives him a warning. Herod is coming to kill the baby. You need to get out, and you need to get out fast. So he tells him to go to Egypt. 
You start thinking, like, why Egypt? First of all, I think it's because it would get him out of the reach of Herod. If you've ever, maybe in your neighborhood, there's a, a dog that is dangerous, a little scary. If that dog is in a fenced-in area, what do you typically tell your kids to not do? Go into the fenced-in area because you're immediately in harm's way as long as you stay outside of that fence. Maybe it's a dog that's on a leash. Maybe there's no fence, but it's got a leash. You don't go any closer to the dog than the leash reaches because if you get to that point, now you're in harm's way. Egypt would have been out of the reach and power and jurisdiction of Herod. It would have been about 75 miles to the border, probably another 100 miles into the country where they would have actually found safe haven for Joseph, Mary, and and baby Jesus. Uh, We do know historically that Egypt, specifically at that time, uh, the city of Alexandria was a safe haven for the Jews due to Alexander the Great. So there was a fairly large, I think I was reading at some point in that time, there might have even been, and I might be wrong in the number, might even have been a million Jews in that area at the time. So it would have made sense to kind of away from home place uh, that they would have been, able to go. But really, at the end of the day, that's not why God sent them to Egypt. Why did God send them to Egypt? Because of his sovereignty, because he's, he's teaching something through it. And now, now we, we do, I do need to acknowledge as we start talking about this typology, Moses is a type of Jesus. He's the deliverer. Jesus is the greater deliverer. That is a true statement. In this passage that we're just reading, that is not the typology we're talking about. The type is Israel, the son of, of, of Egypt, and our son of God, and, and Jesus. Those are the types we're speaking of here that he calls his son out of Egypt. It's a quote from the book of Hosea. Hosea 11.1, it says, out of Egypt I called my son. And he's talking not about Moses as an individual, he's talking about Israel as a nation. Here's where the problem lies. This was found in the book of Hosea. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Hosea, Here's how it goes. God tells Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. Now we need to understand, he's not telling telling him to marry a prostitute that's a reformed prostitute. I mean, she's got some baggage. She's got some skeletons in her past, but she's a new woman. Uh, She's going to be a good wife for you. Like, I want you to marry her. No, he tells her, I want you to marry this prostitute who's going to consistently be unfaithful and unfaithful and unfaithful. And I want you to continue to love her, to redeem her, to care for her, to stay faithful to her, regardless of what she does. And God gives the reason why he has him do this. Hosea 3.1. Go again, love a woman, her name is Gomer, who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. You see, the problem is God is rescuing a people who are going to continue to live unfaithfully. The very next verse in the quotation from Hosea is this. The more they were called, the more they went away. 
They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. It's a tragic love story. You would expect Gomer to be so devoted to this man who's willing to look past all of her sin and all of her shame and all of her guilt, and instead she doesn't care at all. And the same is true with the Israelites. God redeems, God loves, and they're unfaithful. So much so that Ezekiel 16.30 says, How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. And some of the most uh, uh, offensive words probably in the Bible are found a few verses later. And he says, You are worse than prostitutes because prostitutes get paid for their actions. You pay to do the actions. And that, that is God's people. And I, and I think as we think about this, as we think of God's people and God's unfaithful people, we have to be confronted with our own unfaithfulness. How faithful are you to the Lord? How often do you give your heart to other loves and other lovers? How often are you easily swayed into idolatry? And I'm not talking about a, a, a carved object that you have in your house that you bow down to. But we are wooed very much by other lovers in this world. We love power. We love success. We love possessions. We love pleasure. We love this. We love that. And in essence, friends, what the Bible teaches is that's an adultery on our part with our relationship with the Lord. So that's the story of Israel. But here's the story of Jesus. And this is where in the midst of this, we're supposed to see the good news. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Remember, typology, there's an intensification. We start with Israel. God calls Israel out of Egypt, and it results into what? Unfaithfulness. And what we're supposed to see is that Jesus, out of Egypt, is not going to result in unfaithfulness. It's going to result in true faithfulness. I, I, I remember one particular person in the church. I don't see her today. I remember her wearing a shirt online at one point, and it's something in the essence like, I'm the best sibling, or I'm the favorite daughter, or I'm the favorite child. I wear, I have a, I am this year, I've, I don't feel like I have that many challengers. Uh, I'm going to be world's greatest dad, 18th year in a row. I'm also dad number one and the best dad, so it's kind of undisputed dad championship. Uh, all you other dads, there's a chance for second place out there, so good luck. Uh, good luck with that. No, what we're seeing, and I think what we're supposed to read into this with the typology, is that Jesus is the better son. He's the best son. He's the embodiment of everything that Israel could not do right. John 6, 38, Jesus says, I come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Hebrews 4, 15, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. That he's doing what Israel consistently could not do. He's doing what you and I could not do. Romans 8, 2, 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. That had to happen. Jesus had to live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death on the cross because you and I, unless that was happening, would stand condemned and under the wrath of God for all eternity. So we see this new and better son, but we also see a new and better exodus, a new and better deliverance. Think of this. Think of it. It's, it's pretty impressive what he does, right, in the Bible when it comes to the original exodus. Parts water, rival nation, very dangerous, Pharaoh and his army chasing, and he wipes them away. He delivers his people into the, the, the promised land. That's really impressive. But what is more impressive? What he's done with Christ. I, we, yesterday, day was hijacked, dryer broke. A family of eight, we need a dryer. We do literally, my wife could apply for a job at a laundromat. And it would be like, how often do you use washer and dryer? Like 50 times a day. So I had to look. So like in a moment, there's no prep. Like we need a dryer. We need one fast. We got wet clothes everywhere. Um, so it started, it like even briefly online, started looking and comparing like which model is best in that. And like we're just winging it. What's the closest thing to what we currently have? You see like the deliverance element. You know what's more impressive as we kind of side by side comparison. What he did in Egypt? No, what he did through Christ. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered Satan. It had an eternal significance. Remember, he brings them out of Egypt. They end in the wilderness. They eventually end up in the land, and then they end up exiled down the road. And that's the the, the freedom that we have in Christ, the, the good news that we have in Jesus, that we have a better son, we have a better uh, exodus, and we long for an eternity with him. Well, do you exalt Jesus? Do you treasure him? Do you live for him? Do you rejoice in that salvation? Does this excite you? Because that's the hope. Even as Matthew is writing this, the hope is to look and say, he's here. The better, the better deliverer, the, the better son, the better exodus. All right, so that's type number one. Another exodus, story of Israel, story of Jesus. Uh, let's now look at the silver lining. This pattern is initially found at the time of exile. The emphasis will be a hope in a horrible situation. First thing we see in the silver lining, though, is we need to notice the the hostility of Satan. Read verse 16 with me. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, as we saw last week, most likely, now there's a little speculation here. Jesus is probably not two years old, probably in the neighborhood of six months. There's still some kind of biblical and historical mathematics that we're trying to figure out. And God doesn't give us clarity and says, Jesus was six months at the time. But I think what we're seeing is the wickedness of Herod. His willingness to leave no uh, margin for error. I mean, how many times have you saw a kid? Like, how old is the kid? Oh, it's nine months. Like, oh, I thought it was a year. Like, so he left no wiggle room for that. Two years and under, 
He's going he's gonna to wipe them out. But what we see is this, the danger of a rival. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Some of the stories I've seen uh, in the news over the last several years of, even in the, the level of high school, the worry of a rival. A cheerleader trying out for the cheerleading squad, and there's only so many girls going to make it. And I mean, sabotage and poisoning, or a class president. Like, it's amazing for some little trivial thing like being on the high school girls' cheerleading team or being a class president, resulting in felonies and people going to prisons and parents going to. It, it's kind of like that. Herod is looking at this situation and says, All right, I, I'm the self proclaimed king of the Jews. And if this other person that's supposed to be the king of the Jew comes, there would be a rival. They might follow him, and then I lose my position. So if he's dead, he can't be king of the Jews. And what we see, I think, in this is James 1.15. After desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. Now, size of Bethlehem at that time, and hear me when I say this. This is horrible, nonetheless, but it probably was in the neighborhood of 10 to 30 boys that would have been killed in that moment. So just, I want to clarify that so you're not imagining 20,000 kids wiped out at a single time. So probably that, but still, it's, it's 20 to 10 to 30 kids more than it should have been in the first place. He doesn't think twice about these image bearers, but I think here's the key. Because we could just look and say, man, Herod's a wicked guy, and then move on to the next point. But I, I think what we're, we're, we're missing out on something very big going on here. Uh, who here likes all access to things? To be able to see, maybe on TV show or sports or athletic, whatever the case is, like to see what's going on behind the scenes. Your, your music, you love to hear like the artist give a background of why he wrote the song or why she wrote the song. Kind of, well, here's, here is our all access to what just happened in here. Revelation chapter 12. Listen to this. Revelation 12, 4. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God. Do you see what's going on? Because isn't this pretty much this passage in real time? Yeah, Herod is culpable for the wickedness of killing these 10 to 30 or whatever number of boys in there. Terrible. But you know who ultimately is at work in Herod's life in this moment? It's Satan. It's Satan because he wants to kill the son. Not because he's worried about a rival to King Herod. No, he's worried because if you remember Genesis 3.15, right? You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. And Satan is always neurotically obsessed with trying to stop that future head crushing. And he knows that, man, if I can kill the baby, the baby will not become the savior. The savior will not save people from sin. And my future somehow is preserved. So that's what we see. So I think we need to, to start realizing, don't be surprised, one, with what sin can do, and don't be surprised at how Satan opposes Christ. 
Don't be surprised how Satan opposes his people. Don't be surprised at how much destruction. I mean, that, that Satan's end game is to ruin your life. Satan has no good intention for you. So that's the hostility of Satan. But secondly, I want us to see the hope and sorrow. Read verse 17 with me. He says, Then what was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Notice, first of all, the sorrow of the original context. Uh, this is a quotation from Jeremiah 31, 15. Speaks to Rachel. Who is Rachel in the Bible? Whose wife was this? Jacob's wife. She died when she gave birth to who? Benjamin. So they're kind of personifying the women of the mothers of Israel by her name. So it's not literally Rachel that we're speaking of here, but it's the mothers of Israel. They're also in Ramah. Ramah Rama is northern part of Israel. It's between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And in Jeremiah, it has a very specific reason that it's located. It's the place that they were gathered to be deported to Babylon. And imagine the scenario. Have you ever had to say goodbye to somebody that you knew you would not see again? It's an emotional experience, is it not? Maybe it's a loved one that's terminal disease. They're going to be dying. You're not sure. And you're kind of saying bye, knowing I'm probably not going to see you. That's what's going on here. God's people are being exiled and they're weeping. So you can imagine the mothers watching their sons be taken away to a foreign nation, not knowing if they will ever see them again. And that's in the midst of probably other people dying in the midst of Babylon taking over and all of that stuff. So it is a sad, tragic time, but it's more than just the loss of a son. It seems like God's promises are hanging in the balance. Because we've already seen, what's the promise that God had said to Abraham? I'm going to make a great nation of you, and I'm going to give you a land. Well, right now, they are now going to no longer be a nation at this time in history, because they're being exiled. That nation is falling apart, and they're being taken away from the promised land. And here's, here's the sad thing in all of it. It's their own doing. It's their own doing Deuteronomy 30, 17, he warns them, if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but you're drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you this day, you will surely perish. You will not live long in the land that, I'm, that you are going over to as you cross the Jordan to enter and possess. He warned them, if you're going to be unfaithful, I will exile you. They were unfaithful. He exiles them. But here's the key. That's the sorrow component of this. And I think this is the big picture as you and I start thinking through, how does this relate to Jesus? It's the hope. As you and I, I mean, we'll say this sometimes, could things get worse? Have you ever said that? And then they get worse and you're like, ah, oh, they can't get any worse. And then boom, the dryer breaks. You know what I mean? Like things get worse. When it rains, it pours. Where you feel like there's this, I think you're in a cartoon and like there's a, a cloud that keeps following you so it can drop precipitation on your head. You know what I mean? Like, well, that's kind of how the Israelites are feeling in Jeremiah 31. Woe is me, 
Life is bad. And then it's really shocking the verses that follow this quotation. What God tells them to do, listen, Jeremiah 31, 16, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. And this is not suck it up, okay? This is not, you know, be a man, be a tough. No, he's telling them you need to stop doing this. And then he goes on and says, for there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And he promises a new covenant. He promises that you're going to return. In the midst of this chapter, he says, I'm going to turn your mourning into joy. I'm going to put my law within you. I will forgive your iniquity. I will remember your sin no more. That puts things into perspective, right? Now, was there still weeping because their their children were being exiled? But there was a hope that this is still a temporary, short-term pain in the comparison of, of an eternal view of life. And what we see in our passage, this is tragic. That there are parents that lost their young child during this time. But what we're seeing is even in the midst of these two-year-olds and under being killed, that there's not a lack of hope. Because the one in whom the new covenant is centered upon, the one who is going to bring forgiveness, the one who is going to bring us back from an exile into the promised land for all eternity, he is here. He's the reason for joy. So I want to ask you today, what sorrows are you currently enduring? Do you see any hope? Is God aware of your anguish and affliction? Everybody nod your head. He is. He knows what he's doing. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he's going to make all things new, that we have an eternal hope, a greater a future that awaits us in Christ. Because that's what we're reading in this. This is more than just Herod killing some babies. This is a glimpse that the one who's going to come, who's going to turn our mourning into to laughter, he is here as he said he would be. All right, so we see type number one, another exodus. Uh, we saw type number two, a silver lining. Type number three, a man of no reputation. Uh, the last pattern of fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's consider the hometown of Jesus. Read verse 19 with me. Uh, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose, he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right. Of our three typological fulfillments, this one is the hardest. Why? Because there is no direct passage in the Bible. You can spend hours and days looking for it. It's not there. Where it's a direct passage saying what we just read. So what's going on? Why is it so significant that Jesus would spend a near 30 years in this town of Nazareth? 
One argument, I'm just going to briefly mention it, is this is tied to the son of David promise. Isaiah 11.1 1 says this. There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Branch in Hebrew is nezer, nezer. That word is, it seems related in the Hebrew language to Nazareth and Nazarene. So the argument is what it's talking about. Is this about David? Uh, I think that's debatable. I think more commentaries argued against this than for, so I'm going to go with them. But I think really what it's talking about, it's about where Jesus came from and why is it significant. Do places sometimes have bad reputations, locations, cities? For people that are a little bit older, when I say Waco, is there a name that you think of? There was a cult, David Koresh, right? Boom, instantly, Waco. So if you told somebody you're from Waco, you're like, mm. how about Vegas? What happens in Vegas, everybody say it, stays in Vegas, right? So instantly, like, I know if I was from Vegas, I probably wouldn't say I'd make some suburb. I'm from, I don't even know the suburbs of Vegas are, but it would not be, because instantly, like, so he's into gambling and everything else. He lives a very uh, life of debauchery. Not, and not everybody in Vegas does, but you know what I mean? It, it carries that negative reputation. Well, Nazareth would have carried a reputation. See, later in Matthew, we're going to call it, Matthew will call it the Galilee of the nations. And what we see is Matthew is referencing the idea that it, Galilee and Nazareth, it was a melting pot of Jews and Gentiles. Why is that a problem? Think of the Jewish leaders. They wanted to stay far away from the Gentiles. They wanted a very pure, so like a town that was notorious for being ethnically diverse, frowned upon by the Jewish uh, leaders. And that's why in John 1.45, listen to what Nathaniel said. He said, hey, come see Jesus of Nazareth. Come see this guy. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, they had such a high view and an expectation of the king that this did not fit the mold. That he would come from some small, obscure, ethnically diverse town. The king of the Jews? This makes no sense. That would be his hometown. Isaiah 53, 3. It says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I think that's the prophetic fulfillment we're talking about. Notice that it didn't say the prophet, it said prophets. And I think as you look at the Old Testament throughout the prophets, there is a consistent pattern. And the pattern is this, the king that you're going to be expecting is not going to come like you think he's going to come. He's going to come on a donkey. He's going to uh, be humble and meek. He's, he's not going to be beautiful in outward appearance, that there is a humility in the humiliation of Christ. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. First Corinthians speaks that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. Well, do you look at things like the world looks? You carry too much care too much for reputation? Are you willing to be despised and undignified for Christ? 
And are you in all of Jesus? I mean, think of it. Jesus did not, apart from the fact that he had to because he obeyed the Father's will, but let's just say God, the Trinitarian God, could have sent and brought Jesus in in a different context, could he not? He could have, it could have been not the Israelites, it could have been the Romans, could have been the line that he, and he could have had him in the house of Caesar where he had been privileged and he would have had greater influence and all those things. No, he picked a, a, a marginalized people. He picked a no-name town for us. And that's the hometown of Jesus. Well, why is that significant? I think that's where we look at the heart of Jesus. One, he did it for the glory of God. Uh, we sometimes will do stuff and it takes a long road to get to that point and we look back. I mean, right now I'm looking out, I have multiple uh, younger children and I, I'm assuming each parent would say, was it worth all the hard work of the pregnancy to be able to hold that baby? Lyndon, was it worth it? Okay. Wouldn't that be awkward? She's like, no. Oh my goodness, no. He was up all night crying. That would have been, that would have, I'm glad you answered right. This was not rehearsed. You see, with Jesus, it's, there's never a point where it's not worth it for him. Hebrews 12, 2, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That was God's promise. This king was going to be different, and he never wavered on that path to the cross. So being in a no-name town and being obscure in 30 years in Nazareth, that Jesus had no problem with that. And I think not just that he did it for the glory of God, and I think this is where it's very relevant for each of us here today who trust in Christ. He did it for you and I. He did it. I mean, I, I, I like music. I, I, I like love songs. But aren't a lot of the love songs unrealistic? I would cross the ocean for you. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. I'd climb the highest mountain. You can barely go up a hill. No, you, you wouldn't. Like all the wives are just like, yeah, like, I would just like you to do your laundry. I like I'd take the trash out, you know, clean the toilet. I would write that love song, right? No, but Jesus, he, I mean, think, I, I, I want us to look at like him coming from this no-name town. He left the glories of heaven, the perfect relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to enter into a world where he would be despised and rejected by man. He would be hated on. We're going to see later he'll be spit upon. He'll be crucified. And he did it because I love you so much that I'll do whatever it takes to redeem you and to get you to heaven. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And part of him being sent here was to live a life of humility, live a life of, of not riches. I mean, he, a, a, he had no place to lay his head. He was a man of no reputation because he was all in on loving you. We talk a good game when we talk about how much we love people. He not only talked it, he walked it all the way to the cross. Well, are you loved today? 
Are you loving God in response? Are you, are you living for him and his glories? Uh, when you're walking in today, did you see your shadow? Anybody see their shadow? You, you probably did if you're looking because it's sunny out. Nobody's like, did I, did I have a shadow today? I don't know. It's not like a groundhog's day. If we saw your shadow, it's, we're going to have longer winter. No. When light shines upon an object, it casts a shadow, right? And the thing with shadows is they closely resemble the object. They're not the object. There's not as much detail in the object. But at the end of the day, it's kind of, you can know that the object casts a shadow. Why am I talking about shadows? Good question. Because it illustrates what typology is in the Bible. These shadows are types of Jesus. We saw the shadow of the Exodus. We saw uh, Israel being brought out, but now we see Jesus being brought out. And where the one led to unfaithfulness, the other leads to the faithful Christ. We looked at the exile, where they're weeping because their, their children are going away. We saw in this one, and there's weeping because these children are killed. But in both situations, there's a promise of return from exile and hope. And then lastly, we saw this promise amongst the prophets that there was going to be a king who's going to come who's not going to be like the kings you expect, but he's going to be far greater, far more glorious, and he's going to redeem the people. So the shadow is not Jesus. They were a preview of things to come pointing towards the Christ, but not the Christ. But here's the good news. You and I, we live this side of the cross. You and I live this side of the Bible that yes, we can look at the shadows and find comfort and encouragement and excitement, but we're not left with the shadow. We have the real thing. We have the object. We have Christ. We get to see him in his grandeur and his glory. We get to see that he's better, that he's greater, that he's fuller, that he is the one that the true meaning, true satisfaction, true joy, true significance are found. So friends, whatever you are going through today, family problems, health crisis, anxiety, fear, worry, finances, whatever it is, don't look to the shadow. Look to Christ and find comfort in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's rich, that it's filled with your truth, that there'll never get a point where we outgrow your word. There'll never be a point where we will have such a knowledge of scripture that I'm good. I can move on to other things. No, life is going to constantly be us going and, and digging and seeking you and seeking your word and in return us getting to know you more and more. We thank you for the last however many minutes uh, that we've been able to, to get a little bit better glimpse of Jesus and who he is. And we pray, God, for everybody in our midst that Jesus would be the one that they find their joy meaning, and significance in. We pray in his name.